you're going to find, as we teach throughout this book, that, there, that, that, that it really reveals the reason for why Jesus came. He obviously he came for sure to die for our sins and to give us the opportunity to have reconciliation with God. But much of what Jesus came for was to confront the darkness. God is light. In God, there is no darkness at all. This darkness that is around us, this darkness that sometimes is even within us, this darkness which intrudes upon our messy, rebellious, even at times our unbelieving lives, cannot survive in his light. God loved the world so much that he sent light into darkness. He chose to light it up. He, he chose to, to, to let the world know that the darkness doesn't have to control them any longer. And, and so God shows up. And because God is light, the verse really communicates here that, that God sent himself into darkness. And what is beautiful about that and what is, what is amazing for us to get our minds around is that the Bible tells us here that God is light. So when he shows up, darkness disappears. Darkness is, is, is the kingdom of darkness is pushed back in major ways. Uh, so good to be back together this week. Uh, we are beginning a uh, brand new teaching series, like Pastor Josh said, for the entire summer. Uh, and as, uh, as we get started uh, this morning, I kind of want to launch with a question, sort of in response to that video uh, we just watched. And the question is this, have you ever seen something with your eyes? Have you ever experienced something and, uh, and just said, this is the future? You ever, you ever like, like interacted with a product or you've seen something brand new and you're like, oh my goodness, like this is the way of the future. This is, this is it right here. I, I remember uh, in the early 2000s kind of having an experience like this, uh, watching the movie trilogy, The Matrix. Matrix fans, you know, I mean, watching those movies and just being blown, you know, away, just, just can't, you know, can't believe what I just saw. It's so futuristic, thinking, man, this is the way of, of the future. You know, uh, maybe a more realistic example would be in 2007 when Am Apple released the iPhone. Uh, you know, for all of us who were flip phone users at the time, this was like unbelievable, right? It just felt like it was this, this device, this thing from, from like an entirely different time period. It's like it's being brought into the present moment. I think maybe a, a more current day uh, example would be, you know, Tesla releasing vehicles onto the market with self-driving technology. I mean, just that, that sentence sounds so unbelievable to say something like that. It seems like this is, this is one of these things that's sort of brought from a future era and just teleported into our present moment. You think of like cryptocurrency or Bitcoin or wherever you're at on all that, you know, a deregulated or unregulated currency, you know, out there and people don't even know what to think about it, but it just seems like the way of the future. It just seems like, like all of these, these things as they, as they kind of arrive into our lives, everything changes. It's never the same again. Lincoln Steffens, he said this, uh, he said, I have seen the future and it works. Now this, this American journalist, uh, well-known American journalist, he said this in 1919 after he had just returned uh, from a visit to the recently established Soviet Union which had been formed on Marxist principles after the Russian Revolution had overthrown the prior government that had been in place. Now, he gets back to America, and he writes this and says, I have seen the future, and it works. Now, obviously, we can kind of laugh at that and think that's, that's one of the most ridiculous things, you know, but when he gets back to America, this statement right here, he is essentially echoing 
the hope that was felt by, by millions in, in Europe and millions in America at, at the time. And the hope was that this new ideal, uh, this, this you know, new way of sort of ordering human society, that this was the future. That, that this indeed was the future. This is what people were hoping, that this was going to work. That, that this, this uh, new way of life would eventually come to the rest of humanity. And so, in this experience that Stephens has, like he, he literally, like, I mean, he has a glimpse of the future. And he comes back and he declares that it works. Now, we, of course, know that history has revealed to us that the, that the future that Stephens had a glimpse of never really worked out, right? Because over the course of the next several decades, uh, countless lives would be discarded and destroyed as a result of this, you know, revolutionary regime called the Soviet Union. But this is what I think. I think that this is, that in this sense, Stefan's coming back, seeing what he thought was the future, announcing that it works. I, th- I think in this sense, having a glimpse of the future, having, having sort of a, a glimpse of a new world sort of waiting to be born, you know, waiting to sort of arrive on the scene, however tragically mistaken in the case of the Soviet Union, I think that this is the exact picture that the Apostle John is trying to convey and trying to use at the beginning of this incredibly short but powerful letter called 1 John. And I want you to kind of think of of, of this as we start to read through some of these verses together. I want you to think of this phrase, I have seen the future and it works. I want you to kind of hear the Apostle John communicating like that. I have seen the future and it works. 1 John chapter 1 verse 1 says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So essentially, the Apostle John is writing here, and he is saying, I have heard the future. I have seen the future. I have, I have touched the future. I have held the future, and it works. Now, I read these first four verses, and there's just like an overarching thought I want to kind of extract out just as we get started, and, and that thought is this, if you're taking notes. When the future comes into the present, the present is transformed forever. When the future comes into the present, the present is transformed forever. And and that's really what's going on here. That there's this like future hope, this long-awaited hope, and John is declaring to them that it's not just far off and distant, but that it has come. It is here now. Now now we look at these verses and like of course they're just incredible, right? They are amazing. It's just amazing literature. You're like, this is just beautiful to read. But I think that so much of the significance of these verses really begins to come to us when we realize that the ancient Jews believed that the world was divided into two time periods. They believed that the world was really divided into two separate ages. They believed in the present age, which is where, you know, like misery and suffering and injustice and oppression, you know, lived out and and, and were, you know, a regular part of, of their life. But they also believed in this other time period. They believed in this other age, and it was called the age to come. And this is where, where God would sort of sort everything out, where God would make everything right, where God would rescue his people from the evil that they had suffered and so in this, in this, you know, incredible but short 
letter or sermon or book that John is writing here, he, in my opinion, is essentially saying what Lincoln Steffen said in 1919. He's saying, he's saying that, hey, this, this long-awaited you know, future, this age to come that you're, you're anticipating, it really is the future and it really does work because I have both seen the future and I have touched the future. And that's what's being communicated here in the first four verses of 1 John. Now, John gives a very important clarification throughout this letter because not only has he, has he seen this distant future of what's to come, he has seen this distant future break into the present. And so what he's essentially trying to communicate here is that God has provided through Jesus this advanced display, that God has, dev- has provided through Jesus this preview of this incredible future. And the reason why that matters so much is because previously God had, had, had kept this age to come or this, this uh, future hope completely under wraps, waiting to reveal it until the right time. But what is so central to 1 John, this incredible book, and what, what was so central really to all of the Apostle John's writings and, and what is unmistakably central to you know, the early Christian movement was this belief that the future was breaking into the present. And so to them, the future had, had come into the present. This long-awaited age to come had come into the present through Jesus, even though, even though the present world was unaware of it, didn't know anything about it, was, was maybe not even ready for it. An example of this, it would be the emancipation of slaves by President Lincoln that that took place two and a half years prior to the Union troops arriving to enforce the emancipation in the the most remote slave state of Texas. Some of you might know this this story, but Lincoln gives the emancipation. He declares that the slaves are free, but the troops don't arrive in Texas, the furthest away, for two and a half years. Obviously, you know, communication is going to be a bit slow, right, at at, at that time, but that's still incredibly slow. And so what's interesting to me about that story is that the slaves were actually free. They've been declared free. Their future hope of freedom had actually come, but they weren't experiencing the full reality of that freedom because they weren't aware that their future hope was breaking in, was trying to break into their present-day struggles. And so what's interesting to me about the story is that even though they were still being treated like slaves, it didn't change the fact that they were still legally Free And so when the troops finally arrive in Texas with this message from President Lincoln, think about it. The not yet, the age to come, the future hope had finally broken into their present moment. They were finally experiencing what had already been declared. And those who were proponents of slavery, those who were slaveholders, slave owners, they were already defeated and they didn't even, didn't even know it, right? And so in this letter of 1 John, I think similar to what happened to the slaves after the Civil War, John is trying to communicate to these people that their future hope has arrived, even if they haven't heard about it yet, even if they, they aren't fully aware of it. The, the hope is here. The age to come has arrived. It is here now, and it is through Jesus. Now, over and over again in his writings, in both you know, his, his three short you know, epistles at the end of the New Testament and in his gospel, John tries to convey this future hope He tries to communicate this future hope really through one word. It's a specific word that he uses over and over again in all of his writings, and it's the word life. 
Take notes, it's the word life. He uses this word all the time, over and over and over again. In fact, if we go back to these scriptures for a second here at the beginning of 1 John, I want you to look at the first two verses. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, uh, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Okay, verse two, the life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. John, over and over again, uses this word life to really communicate or to convey this future hope, this, this age to come. He says the, 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 the age to come, this future hope has appeared. We've seen it. We've testif- we testified to it. And so, I mean, this is just, uh, this is just incredible. And so, uh, a couple examples in the Gospels where, where John uses this word life. Uh, John chapter 8, uh, verse 12, he's quoting Jesus, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of, of life. Of the light of this, of this future hope, this age to come. They'll, they'll actually have it. It'll, they'll carry it. Uh, John, John 1, uh, 4 through 5, in him was life, talking about Jesus, in him was life, in him was this future hope. And that future hope, that age to come, was the light of man, light of men. Light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And then in John 10, 10, one of my most favorite uh, verses, uh, it just says, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but I have come that they may have, what's the word? They may have life and have it to the full. John uses this word to convey this future hope, this age to come, this long-awaited uh, future that they were anticipating when God would make everything right, when, when God would, would sort everything out, when God would rescue his people from the evil that they had suffered. He's using this word to convey that, and, and Jesus is saying it over and over and over again. So life here in, these, in this context really means a future hope, but it also means a present hope. It also means a present hope. And so Jesus is saying this is, this is life as it was always meant to be. This is, you know, kind of the, the future as it was always meant to be in the present. Life in its full and vibrant meaning, a life which death tried to steal, kill, and destroy. A life that has overcome death itself and is now available to anyone who wants to come and take it. This is what's being communicated here by the Apostle John, that life itself has come. The life, the future, the age to come, uh, it has taken the form of a human being and it was breaking into the present age and the name of that person is Jesus. That's good stuff. That's what John's communicating here in the first, you know, opening lines, the introduction here is he's saying like the the long-awaited future, it has arrived, it has come. I have seen it, I have heard it speak, I have touched it, I have held it. I am an eyewitness to the thing that we have all been waiting for, and it has come. That's just the first four verses, and I'm going to get through seven today, okay? So we're doing pretty good here, right? So what I want to do here as I get into verse five, I want you just to set it up quick. Verse five is where we start to sort of pivot. Verse five is where John really begins to introduce the whole point of the letter, much of the reason for why he's even writing this in the first place. And so let me give you these verses Uh, right here, and we're going to break them down. Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, 
as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Some of you may have maybe kind of familiar with these verses, right? They, they start to maybe come back to you. These are incredible things, but what I want you to see in this passage here, these, these, these three verses, 1 John 1, 5 through 7, I want you to see uh, is not just theology. I don't want you to just see doctrine. I don't want you to just see like a, a, a Bible teaching or an exhortation, even though it is all of these things. What I really want you to see in this passage as we read it together is the Apostle John writing these things at the end of his life in his mid-80s or whatever, and, and it, you know, he, it's at a time period where he is overseeing, uh, you know, several churches uh, all across Asia Minor. What I want you to see as we read these and in, in pull out of this passage is the Apostle John at the end of his life, after all that he has gone through, right? I mean, this guy has been, he's been boiled alive in hot oil. He's been banished to the island of Patmos uh, by the emperor. And, I mean, he has been heavily persecuted for his faith. And so as you read these verses, you know, these opening lines to this, to this sermon, I, what I want you to, 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 to sort of pull out of this is, is that the Apostle John, at the end of his life, after all he's been through, is, is essentially just sitting down and he's making an appeal to, to those who are being tempted to either walk away from their faith or be deceived. He's making an appeal to them. And I want you to, I want you to kind of feel this moment with me, Okay. And I want you to sort of think to yourself, like, what would you do if you had the opportunity to, to sort of gather around the Apostle John at the end of his life? Like, after all he's been through and after all he's experienced, like, what, what, would, you, what would you do with that? If you had that opportunity. And what we're trying to really do over the course of the entire summer is really offer you that opportunity. That we're going we're gonna to sort of gather around the Apostle John at the end of his life, after all he's walked through, after all he's been through, after all he's seen and heard, I mean, think about it. He has, he has seen Jesus face to face. He has walked with Jesus. I mean, he is the beloved disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. I mean, he has had his character transformed so much to the point that he goes from being known as a son of thunder to being known as an apostle of love. He is there at the cross. When Jesus is dying, Jesus looks at him from the cross and references him in that moment. I mean, this is someone who knew the heart and the life of Jesus. This is someone who knows what Jesus values. And so here he is at the end of his life in his 80s, and he's pastoring churches, and he sees deception coming in. He sees it. He sees people who, who have been Jesus followers, who have you know, grabbed, laid hold of the gospel, and he just sees deception starting to come into the church. And he's writing this letter, not from, not from like a, a place of anger or frustration. He, he's writing this from a spirit of love, a very, very pastoral approach to these people. He's writing out of the experiences that he got personally from his time spent with Jesus. He's writing these things to a church, really dealing with some of the, 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 the same cultural, cultural circumstances that are really much like ours even right now. And so in my opinion, as I, as I you know, read through this, uh, Pastor Josh and I actually read it together uh, a few times, even kind of prepping for this, but in, even in, in, in some of my own time reading through this, uh, I really felt like there was one verse in 1 John. 
that really communicates clearly the message and the purpose for why John is even writing this to begin with. And it's actually in 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. I'm going to kind of give it away for, uh, you know, for a moment, and we're going to jump back into chapter 1. But John says this. He says, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. It's really the purpose. You don't let anyone lead you astray. It's why he's writing this letter to these people. And what he sees here are people out there trying to lead these believers astray. That's what he is witnessing. That's what he sees happening. And he's pleading with, with, with these, these Christians, these followers of Jesus, not to fall into temptation because it will lead to their spiritual ruin. Now, the main issue that John is dealing with here and needing to address is really a form of Gnosticism, which was one of the heresies that was found in the early church that had to be dealt with. It's, it's what he is dealing with head on here. And, and so let me just kind of help you understand what Gnosticism is and give you sort of the backdrop to this book. Uh, if you're taking notes or you want to take a picture, look at this with me. Gnosticism, uh, and this is sort of a summary here, okay, is, is the false belief that the spirit is the only thing that really matters. And our bodies are these sinful cages that we can't do anything about. It's the belief that the body is, is evil and wicked. Therefore, if your spirit is right with God, it doesn't really matter what you do with your body because your body is sinful. This was the type of Gnosticism that was making its way, seeping its way into these, these early churches that, that John was, was overseeing. And it, it's the type of Gnosticism that he is having to address right here. He's dealing with in this letter this belief that you can have a pure heart and then you can do evil things with your bodies because it really doesn't matter. Because the only thing that God cares about is your spirit. Well, this led to a teaching that worked its way into parts of the church that said, once you become a Christian, you can do whatever you want. Your morality is up to you. It doesn't really matter. As long as your theology and your spirit aligns with Jesus, you can just do whatever you, can do whatever you want. These Christian believers were being deeply deceived to believe that you could love God and then be free to do whatever your sinful nature wants you to do. The heresy basically said this, that, that God doesn't care about your morality, that God doesn't care about your behavior, that God doesn't care how you spend your money, what you do with your sexuality, what you do with your time, what you do with your hobbies. It's really what was going on in the early church. That it really, none of that really matters. All of that is peripheral. None of that, none, none of that is, is, is worth wasting time over because God only cares about your spirit. And as long as your morality and your theology lines up with Jesus, you're good to go. And so in this letter, John, in this sermon, John's really fighting back against those who are doing the deceiving. Those who are allowing this heresy to enter the church and those who are teaching it and affirming it, he's fighting back against those who are seeking to harm the ones that he loves and the ones that he has called to pastor. And I think that so much of his vision in this letter is really to fight, uh, to fight against sin and darkness. If you read, you read 1 John, that's really what he is fighting against, sin and darkness. And he's saying, he's saying to you, and he's saying to me, and he's saying to those back then in the first century that you can't just continue to do whatever you want and still expect to prosper. You can't just do whatever, whatever you want and still expect to be fine. And I know that this sounds ancient, and I know some of, some of the nuance to Gnosticism in the, in the first century here seems a little bizarre and crazy. Like, who would really think like that? And the problem is, is, that, is that a lot of times uh, we actually walk this out and don't realize it. 
that, that we sometimes think that because we, you know, go to church or because, you know, I have been a Christian for a long time, that, that, that I, I, I'm doing fine, that my morality is, is okay, that I'm, that I'm doing just fine. And, and really, I think that a lot of times we actually start to walk out some of what John was addressing in the, in the first century, even, even today. Because we, we actually tell ourselves that, that, that as long as I love God, as long as I, I, I'm a Christian, as long as I'm, I'm okay, like God doesn't really care about my morality. God doesn't really care about my hobbies. God doesn't really care about how I spend my money. He doesn't really care about my sexuality. He doesn't care about all of these things. As long as like what I believe aligns with the gospel. And friends, I'm just here to tell you today, like that is absolutely not true. It's not true. God cares about it. He cares about it deeply. And so what I want to do here is just break down these, these three verses, verses 5, 6, and 7, and just let you kind of walk away today chewing on what you think this means. I'm going to give you some of my own insight here. So verse 5, John says, this is the message we have heard from him and, and declared to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Now you got to remember the heresy that he's dealing with here, right? The belief that you could love God and still enjoy plenty of darkness. And he is, he's making it clear. He's saying, look, 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 look. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. He's saying you've got it all wrong. Because, because first of all, if, if you didn't know, God is light. Like, hey, you've got it all wrong. You're living it all wrong. Because God is light. In God there is no darkness at all. And this darkness that is around us. This darkness that sometimes is even within us. This darkness which intrudes upon our messy, rebellious, and even at times our unbelieving lives cannot survive in his light. Because God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. One glance and he'll know. There is no point in hiding it. Right? It reminds me of, of like Adam and Eve. You know, this is it's a tale as old as time, right? Them in the, in the Garden of Eden. And, you know, we, we know the story where they, they eat from the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they're, they're forbidden to do so. And what happens? They immediately know that they're naked, and they go and they, they get these, like, fig leaves or whatever. And, you know, uh, it's interesting that they, that they thought to do that. But, uh, you know, they go and do that. And then, and then what happens? They hear God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hide. They hide from God. Why are they hiding from God? Because they know that there is something in them that is broken. They know that there is something in them that is, that is wrong. There's this darkness that is a part of them now, and they are trying to hide from God because they know that God is light. And then when God looks on them, it's going to expose the darkness that is within them. And in many ways, they're terrified of what that encounter is going to look like. If you're taking notes, look at this with me. In the physical realm, whenever light appears, darkness disappears. And the same is true in the spiritual realm. That whenever light appears, darkness disappears. Whenever you walk into a dark room and turn on the light, the darkness immediately, immediately leaves. Why is that? Because darkness cannot stand against light. It can't overcome it. It can't overpower it. You know, this is a room with no windows, right? So if we shut off all the lights, it's complete darkness in here. And I pull out like a small little candle or a small little, 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 little you know, uh, lighter or a light of some sort. I mean, it's, it's complete darkness and you, and you can't see, but as soon as that light comes on, every eye in here begins to see it. And the darkness that was in this room that was overtaking this entire room, it immediately pushes back. It immediately steps back. 
That light, it, 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 doesn't get to, it doesn't get to negotiate with light. It doesn't get to, to, just, to just, you know, in that moment say, I'm not going. I'm not, I'm not leaving here. I, I'm not, I, I, I do not want to leave uh, where I'm at. It doesn't get to do that because re- regardless of what darkness wants, it has to move back. It has to step back when light, uh, you know, when, when light shows up. And in the spiritual realm, that is, that is so true that, w- that, that whenever light appears, darkness disappears. And what is beautiful about that and what is, what is amazing for us to get our minds around is that the Bible tells us here that God is light. So when he shows up, darkness disappears. Darkness is, is, is the kingdom of darkness is pushed back in major ways. The Gospel of John chapter 1 verse 9 says this. It's, it's referring to Jesus. It says the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The true light Jesus was coming into the world to make darkness disappear, to confront the darkness. You're going to find, as we teach throughout this book, that, there, that, that, that it really reveals the reason for why Jesus came. He, obviously, he came for sure to die for our sins and to give us the opportunity to have reconciliation with God, but much of what Jesus came for was to confront the darkness. He is light, and he came to confront what is dark. John chapter 12, again in the gospel, uh, verse 46 Jesus is saying, I have come as, what's the word? I have come as light to shine in this dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the dark. This is, this is the mission of Jesus. This is him, you know, expressing his mission with his own words. That I have come as a light to shine in this dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the dark. You know, one of the most famous verses that just about all of us probably have memorized and even non-believers are familiar with is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Well, that's, that's John 3.16. Three verses later, John 3.19 is, is a really incredible, uh, really incredible scripture. In fact, you can look at it here. It just, it, it just says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. And it comes like immediately after, just a couple of verses after John 3.16, this famous one. And so when I, when I look at that in context, I, I start to realize that, that, that what's being communicated here is that God so loved the world, you know, so much that he sent light into darkness. That's, that's, what, that's what's really being communicated here, that God loved the world so much that he sent light into darkness. He chose to light it up. He chose to, to, to let the world know that the darkness doesn't have to control them any longer. And, and so God shows up. And because God is light, the verse really communicates here that, that God sent himself into darkness. This is the beauty of the gospel. God sent himself into darkness. And so that's number one, right? That's, that's the first, first thing John communicates in these, in these verses is that God is light. And you got to catch that. you got to appreciate that. And that in him there is no darkness at all. And he goes to kind of qualify that and, and, and really lays out the ongoing issue, an issue that was present 2,000 years ago and an issue that's, that's still present uh, today. And it's in verse 6. And he says, If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Well, that's a pretty serious thing to say. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness... We lie and do not live by the truth. Well, the question that comes to mind immediately here is, so then what does it mean to actually walk in darkness? Wouldn't you want to know? 
How do you even begin to tell yourself like, or, or figure out if you're walking in darkness if you don't know, don't know how to define that? So let me just be clear here. What John's writing here, he's not um, talking about someone who struggles occasionally or has a, a particular, particularly difficult sin that they're trying to fight. That's not what he's getting at here. He's not talking about Christians who are wrestling with sin or trying to break bad habits and old ways of thinking or those who are trying to walk in the spirit and put off the flesh. It's not what he is talking about here. This is really about the ones who don't seem to care all that much. They're gonna do whatever they wanna do. This is about living with the continual practice of sin in our lives. Like, like I know what the Bible says. I know that God probably like, doesn't want that in my life, but like, I, I, I'm just gonna do it. Like, I'm, I'm gonna grab grace, I'm gonna move on, you know? I'm gonna ask for forgiveness later. You know, that's how so many of us are, like honestly, spiritually speaking. We're gonna do what we want, we're gonna ask for forgiveness later. This is, this is what John is, a, is, is really getting at here. This is about having some sins in our life that we don't actually hate. Sins that we just keep around. In fact, if you're taking notes, I want you to catch this big thought today. The sins that undo us aren't the ones we hate, confess, and fight. The sins that undo us are the ones we love. And John says, if you're going to follow Jesus, this cannot be your posture. It can't be your posture. This can't be how you approach your spirituality. This cannot be how you approach your relationship with God. Because if it is, you might not actually be in the light as much as you think you are. Now, what I have learned about darkness, and maybe you have as well, is that darkness is often much more subtle than it is blatant. Like, we know the blatant darkness, we know, like we know like the big stuff, we know the stuff, and, and, and oftentimes it's hard for us to relate to that and think, well, man, I don't, I don't, I'm not like doing this, this, and this, like I think I'm all right, but I think what I've learned over the years is that darkness is often more subtle than it is blatant, especially in the church, and you can be walking in darkness and not think that you're walking in darkness. You can actually think that you're walking in the light and not be. I think that a lot of people are walking in darkness and they don't even realize it. They think that they're fine because they consider themselves to be morally good people. But Jesus made it clear over and over again that those who think that they're morally superior or morally adequate might actually be in more danger of self-deception than the one who is totally rebellious. I mean, he says this over and over again, right? He confronts the Pharisees. He Matthew 23, it's all the woes. Woe to you, Pharisees and hypocrites. You know, he's, he talks about how you, you, know, you, you clean the inside of the cup, but, or you, you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is, 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 is left unclean, left still dirty. He says you're like whitewashed tombs. You know, the, the, the outside you know, is, is nice and shiny and pretty, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones. Like Jesus says this. These are his words. So he knows how easy it is to, to, to fall into the danger of self-deception and to think that we're fine, to actually think that we're walking in the light and we're not. If you're taking notes, we begin to walk in darkness whenever we buy into the system of this world that seeks to push Jesus out of the center so that something else can take his place. This is a good way to, to know that you have begun to walk in darkness when you've bought into the system of this world that seeks to push Jesus out of center so that something else can take his place. Now, this isn't removing Jesus altogether. Absolutely not. This is, this, is a, this is a system that encourages us to keep Jesus apart, but to remove him from center. And what's interesting to me about like, the way of the world, the way the, way, the, way, like, the dominant culture works, is, is it doesn't just seek to get our attention. It really seeks to get us to fall in love with ourselves. It's not enough to just distract us. 
Not enough to just get us to like, to like, you know, focus on some other hobbies or some other things. Like the system of this world that, that, that is like so prevalent is to get us to really fall in love with ourselves. I mean, this is why like the, really, really the, the idol of, the, of, of this age, the idol that, that, that is so prevalent in 2021 are, are things like self-reliance, self-expression, individualism, you know, just, just, you know, I got it myself. I can do this myself. It's, it's, it's a complete focus of everything that I want and everything that I want to do. Well, it's entirely antithetical to the gospel of Jesus and to what Jesus, the life that Jesus invites us into and calls us into. And so there's this system in the world. There's a way the world works. And I think what John is getting at is he's saying here, like, as you begin to sort of, sort of like fall into this pattern of thinking and the way the world goes, you're going to find yourself walking in darkness and maybe you won't even realize it. Maybe you won't even realize it. Verse 7, last verse. John says, it, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Let's just read that again. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So what's being communicated in this verse is that there is this purification from sin that comes from walking in the light. There's a purification that comes. There's a cleansing that happens when we live lives where we're walking in the light. And so the question then here is, what does it mean to walk in the light? So we've kind of defined what it means to walk in darkness and how we can kind of, kind of, kind of get caught up in that. But what, what does it actually mean to walk in the light? And how do we, how do, we do this? Well, there's probably a lot of ways I could define this. There's probably a million different ways you could find this defined, you know, on, on, on Google or different podcasts or pastors, other, other people out there. But the best way that I can kind of figure this out, at least for myself, of what it means to walk in the light is really twofold. I think that there has to be an awareness of the future hope that has come, so the beauty of our salvation. There has to be an awareness of this, like the incredible beauty of our salvation. Like, like we have to be captivated by it. We have, to, we have to, like, understand that this is, like, unbelievable what has taken place. And then the second part of this, walking, you know, in, in the light, is that there has to be an intentional resistance to sin. But here's the deal, like, you can't have one without the other. So, so if all you're doing is just resisting sin, but you're not captivated by the beauty of your salvation, what is that going to produce in you? It's, it's going to produce, you know, performance. It's going it's to produce bondage. It's, it's going it's to create, you know, a, 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 a lot of bad habits in our lives. But if you also just are captivated by the beauty of your salvation and you're not intentionally resisting sin, what is that going to produce? It's going to produce what, you know, Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace, taking advantage of the grace that we have been given. It's going to produce some, some form of Gnosticism like we're reading here in the New Testament that I can kind of have my spirituality okay, but I can do whatever else I want and be fine. And so walking in the light is twofold. There's really, it, 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 it's, it's a two tracks here. One is, is being captivated by the beauty of our salvation and also being, living lives where we are intentionally resisting sin. In fact, if you're taking notes, look at this thought. All resistance to sin must be rooted in the reality of the beauty of our salvation. It has, it has, this is where it has to start. And I've seen a lot of people over the years just, just fighting with like all these things that keep tripping them up, all these issues in their life. I mean, all this guilt and the shame they feel like, I just can't get free. I just can't get free. Well, well some of the reason for that 
at least in some of the cases that I've witnessed firsthand, is that many people are trying to deal with the issues of sin in their life before they have actually become captivated by the beauty of the salvation that they have received. That this long-awaited hope, this age to come, has actually come to us. This eternal hope that we all carry as followers of Jesus, it has arrived. It is present. The kingdom of God is both now and not yet. There there is still more to be revealed. There is still more to come when Jesus returns. But it is now, it is present, it is with us. It has the power within us to push back the kingdom of darkness. And so for a lot of people, I find them just, just struggling with sin, struggling with sin, trying to deal with sin, but originating from a place that is not from from being captivated by the beauty of their salvation. And here's what I think. I think that if we if 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 we don't think that our salvation is that good, we won't fight very hard against sin. If we don't think that our salvation is that good, we're not going to fight very hard against sin. And so if you don't spend time getting your head and your soul around the beauty of your salvation, you won't be very successful in fending off what is coming to destroy you. I'm going to invite yeah, the worship team to come on up here as I get ready to close. I think the reason why we have to resist sin is because we have been made alive. And we've been set free from the power of it. And sin's just like this tricky thing. We're going to talk about it a little bit more next week, so I expect a full crowd. Um, but, you know, it's, 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 it's a tough thing. I think sometimes we, we just struggle to even see it in us. We struggle to even, like, see it in us. That the cross was necessary for me because of my sin, because of my brokenness. And the reason why we resist sin is because we've been made alive. We've been set free from the power of it. We're no longer in bondage to sin any longer, and it just creates this motivation in us to live differently. I think that what John is getting at here, these three verses, five, six, and seven, he's saying, No one who claims to follow Jesus has the right to continue walking in darkness. No one who claims to follow Jesus has the right to continue walking in darkness. And he's saying you have to change your path. You have to walk differently. You have to walk in the light. Now, walking in the light is not a type of moralism where we now somehow have to live up to all that God says. It's not a type of moralism. It's going to be morally better. Walking in the light is living out and responding to our new nature and relationship with him to please him in gratitude for the things that we have been rescued from. That's walking in the light. Living with this unbelievable gratitude for what he has reached down and rescued us from. That's the motivation. Not to just sort of like fix myself and to just be morally better this year than I was Last year, I still got some things I'm struggling with. It's, it's, it's not that. It's like we're always going to have these things that trip us up. Always going to have these things that we struggle with that are just a part of our flesh. But our, 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 our strategy against sin is to come from this place of like deep gratitude because of what he has actually rescued us from and where we would be had he not done that. Look at this thought. Grace doesn't just free us from sin, it teaches us to say no to it as a lifestyle. That's, what, that's, that's what's 
going on here? This is what it means to walk in the light. It's to not just let the blood of Jesus cleanse you and purify you from sin, which is, which is big, because you can't do that on your own. And all of us have been stained by sin. But the beauty of what this is talking about here is it's saying like, like grace doesn't just do that. It doesn't just like cleanse our record. It also teaches us to say no to it as a lifestyle. It teaches us that there, there's a better way. There's a better life. And it's here and it's present and it has arrived. It has broken in to our present day struggles. It's here. It's right now. It's the abundant life. And you can say no to it as a lifestyle. When you realize, when you recognize all that you've really been saved from, all that Jesus has done for you, all that he's freed you from, you start to live this out as a lifestyle. Like, I, I, I don't even want to touch that ever again. St. Ignatius of Loyola, he said this. He said, sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. You want to define sin this morning. And I'm sure if I asked us to give a definition, you know, have you write something down and send it in, we'd have as many different responses or answers as we have people in the room today. I think this is a great, a great definition. It's an unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. Because every time we sin, we essentially say to God that I can't trust you to meet my deepest needs. I can't trust you to meet my deepest needs. And so when we can't, listen to me, when we can't trust God to meet our deepest fundamental needs, you know what happens? We take the place of God by taking the responsibility to meet our most fundamental needs upon ourselves, That's what happens. And this is the system of the world. This is, this is the trap. Can you really trust God to meet all your needs or not? Can you really trust God to do that for you? You might, you might wanna just take that upon yourself. You might wanna just rely upon yourself. You might wanna just depend upon yourself. You might wanna just fulfill your needs yourself. It's the system of the world. It's the system of the world. It unseats God from the throne of your life. Time and time and time again. And so to walk in the light, man, it's all these things. It is, it is where we walk in freedom from the things that have enslaved us. It's living with this incredible sense of, of beauty and, and awe of, the, of our salvation. It's intentionally resisting sin. Saying no to it as a lifestyle. Would you stand with me this morning? Let me give you a final thought here. I just needed you to get up. You look like you needed it. Where you walk determines where you end up. It's probably the most profound thing you've ever heard, right? Where you walk determines where you get up, where, where you end up. So if you walk in the light, you see where you're going and can ensure that you end up actually where you want to be. But if you walk in darkness, what happens? Your vision is obscured you're literally unable to see where you're going. And oftentimes you end up places that you actually never wanted to be in the first place. You ever had this happen to you? You ever been driving, you can't see? You ever just, 
miss your exit? Where you walk determines where you end up. Am I going to walk in the light or am I going to walk in darkness? And let me just tell you that what John is getting at in this letter, this sermon, is he is going to tell you that there is a war for your obedience. There is a battle for your obedience. There are forces at work in the world in direct opposition to the plans of God for your life. There is a war for your obedience. There's a war for whether or not you're actually going to walk in the light as he is in the light, or if you're just going to walk in darkness. And so the question really of maybe most importance today is, how are you walking? How are you walking? You look at your life right now, honestly. Am I walking in the light? Is there any darkness in me? Is there any way in me that's offensive to God? David says, search me and know me, O God. See if there is any offensive way in me at all. So would you just bow your heads with me? God, we just come before you in this place. And we just, we just, we just in a similar way, we cry out like David did, God, that you would search us now and you would know us that you would expose with your light anything that might be offensive in us. God, would you let us this morning by your grace just deal with it once and for all. God, would you give us once again this, this reminder of how incredible our salvation really is. I pray you'd wake us up to this incredible awareness of how beautiful our salvation is. And that your grace doesn't just free us from some things, but it teaches us to say no to sin as a lifestyle of God. I pray, Father, that we'd walk out of here just walking differently. Father, break through right now. Wherever there is bondage, Wherever there seems like there is no way to get past this, oh God, I pray for breakthrough and freedom in this house. God, besetting sins, Lord, things that have just been in the way for far too long, where the enemy has been at work, God, I pray for these things to just begin to peel off the backs of, of those under the sound of my voice right now. In Jesus' name, I silence every voice, every lie right now under the sound of my voice in Jesus' name. I pray for clarity to hear the truth. And God, would you take your kids out of this room today and would you lead them in a way where they walk entirely differently, God? We want to walk in the light as you are in the light. We're captivated by you. We're captivated by the mystery of the gospel and the simplicity of the gospel. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.